Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to our second Ray Ellis, that's one of the South Nuts as ours, 107 Regiment, uh, Royal Artillery, uh, our second special. And Gary, you must be very excited to, to be joining us for this. I am. <laughs> I, feel, I feel underwhelmed, Gary. It's really nice to be back in your home, Pete. It's a long time since we've been recording these in... in uh, indoors, as it were, but the restrictions have allowed it. And I've noticed you've got a rather, rather good guitar at the side of the room. Are we going to get to hear you play that later? Uh, no, because I, I, it's really a vanity project. Oh, it's just an ornament. <laughs> That's what Polly calls it, yeah. yeah. In fact, she thinks of me as an ornament, I think. Something precious not to be touched. <laughs> and occasionally dusted. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, so so where did we leave him? Well, we we done. Uh, we what well, we are. We're doing. This is in Ray's own words. We do bugger all in these podcasts, don't we? We just basically introduce excerpts of Ray Ellis and poor old Matt McLaughlin and his highly trained team of people putting right my own professional mistakes. Uh, <laughs> so, we won't mention the microphone. No. Uh, the, uh, the, the they 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 stitch it all together, and I'd like to thank uh, Matt and his editor for his their patience in putting this together. But what had happened? Well, in January 1940, uh, their training came to an end, and the South Nazis uh, go across the English Channel. Oh, so they're being deployed into France? No, they're on their way to Palestine with the first cavalry and only first cavalry division, and their route is to go via France to Marseille and then get uh, get the boaty thing from uh, from from Marseille. Um, now, um, when when they get to Cherbourg, it, it, it's it's not you know it's not a pleasant experience for Ellis, is it? We eventually got to Cherbourg the following day, and that I remember very well. We stood on Cherbourg docks from early morning to late at night in a most atrocious weather you could possibly imagine. It was absolutely bitterly cold. We were in field service marching order with kit bags and ammunition, weighted down, and they would we'd stand for probably half an hour. Then they'd say, kit's off. And so you lay down, because it was too heavy today, you lay down, unclip the webbing and let the things up, and then you could sit up without the weight. You'd just get that done, then they'd be, pipes on! And you'd have to lie down again and clip it on and struggle to your feet and help each other to our feet. Then you'd stand 
quarter of an hour, and then march about a hundred yards, halt, stand again, kits off down the, and this went on the whole live long day. Everyone was perished and good. there was no food, nothing to drink at all. In the evening time, we'd been there hours and hours and hours. We were wet through with cold, and then they gave us all a tin of McConaughey's meat and vegetable. And that was the ration for the day, that was it. But nothing to open the tins with. We were trying to open these tins and eat this cold meat and it was atrocious, a terrible thing. It's funny that, isn't it? Because McConaughey's was uh, a staple of the First World War as well, or the Great War as we call it. Yeah, it was, it was. Now, the, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it, people say it was horrible, but it's just lamb and uh, vegetables. And if it's cold, it's horrible. If it's if A it's lot of heat... food's horrible cold, isn't it? Yeah, Let's face it, is. it it is. Anyway, their, their train was unheated. They were packed in like sardines. Uh, you must have travelled on a train in your army days. Uh, all the kit pack piled up on the racks. Uh, uh, th- and there were three days and nights three days and nights Gary to get across France you'll be surprised to know Pete that I've also travelled on trains uh, during uh, the civilian times of my life you've lived I have lived I worked for Transport for Lando I on trains all the time oh I wish I'd been on a train yeah anyway uh, Ray's not in a good state is he what do you think's wrong with him well, for one thing, uh, he, he collapses with influenza, I think. Oh, when he gets to Marseille. By this time, I was coughing up blood, which worried me because I thought it was, well, actually, I had burst a capillary in my throat. It was nothing, really, but it was a bit dismaying in those conditions and cough, cough, cough. I felt really ill. And then it was a matter of getting on board the Devonshire, but by this time, I was a, I was a stretcher case. I was really ill. I'd almost collapsed. And so they carried me off the train on a stretcher. And uh, so I lay on a stretcher shivering on the on the quayside at Marseille, and eventually I was carried aboard the Devonshire. And I can remember saying to somebody, "I expected to come back on a stretcher. I expected to go on one." Blimey, coughing up blood, eh, Gary? <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, you know, <laughs> he was known as Lucky Ray after that. <laughs> I, I do like that quote. I expected to come back on a stretcher. What well, didn't expect to go out on one? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's oh, a dear. lovely quote. Now, uh, <laughs> so lucky Ray Ellis, <laughs> like a gunner. Sorry to give him his full title. He uh, he recovers. He, they're on H. They're on H. His Majesty's troop ship Devonshire, and they they sail all the way across the Mediterranean, Gary. Uh, and the weather's quite nice. Uh, and then one of the lads gets meningitis. Well, <laughs> brilliant. So when they get there, they go into quarantine. Uh, but then they, grad- they, they, they move into Sarafand camp, which is in Palestine. If you saved a tin of flies, a cigarette tin, 50 cigarette tin, you were allowed to go to the cinema free. Instead of, taking, instead of taking money, you took a tin of flies and they tip these out and give you a ticket to go in. That was to encourage you to swap them. <laughs> it was very easy to get a tin of flies. You just sat there doing this for half an hour. And there were so many. Mm. I wish I could pay to go to the cinema with flies. Well, if it was fleas, there might be a chance to go. Oh, yeah, that's you true. Do, you do have I'd, your own personal I'd, I'd, collection. I'd just, just book Fred in at the door. <laughs> that's right. What a lovely doggy he is. Um, and they, they moved from Sarafan to, to Gadira. And, and, and by this time, uh, Ray's becoming a bit more aware of, 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 of surroundings. And also he becomes aware that the British aren't necessarily popular. You you could sense a lot of it, the hostility in their looks and so on. I remember 
one afternoon walking along a street somewhere round about Gadira, I think, and passing two Jewish young ladies, and uh, I said good afternoon to them, and they spat at us, you know, spat in my face. And that was rather a shock, because I'd always been brought up to believe that everyone thought the British were marvellous people, you know. What do you think of that? Well, that's quite interesting, because I, I had a sort of similar thoughts when I was very young in Germany. I was sort of 18, 19 years old. It never occurred to me that some of the local population might not like us, but some of them didn't. Never, never. Mm. Can't believe it. Now, what do you think they're doing? What, what, what are they doing? Are, are they on active service in, in Palace? I suppose they are in a way, but what are they really doing? Well, they're doing lots of drill and they're, they're practising dropping into action. By dropping into action, that's getting the guns ready and, and, and ready to fire. But they're also doing some, some nice things. Uh, Hadira Camp They moved had, to Hadira, uh, right. Yeah, it, it had a, a, a very nice coastline. Sea. And they were swimming and bathing in the sea and all the sort of things that soldiers would get up to, you know, given the opportunity. Now, the next quote does remind me of you. On, uh, on the 15th of April, 1940, they're inspected by General Sir Archibald Wavell, the general officer commanding Palestine. He walked along the line as general do and picked up some odd man to speak to and he stopped in front of me and said, um, do you feel ready to go out and meet the enemy? To which I replied, yes, sir, good man, he said, and walked out. And that was my spot me. And I think had Hitler known that I was ready to go and meet the enemy, the Third Reich would have trembled. <laughs> now that quote does, does have a touch of you about it. Well, I think he's got a touch of Baldrick about it, hasn't it? Um, you know... <laughs> <laughs> They'd have been terrified if they knew I was ready for it. Uh, it, it I mean, it has a, a, a sort of resonance with it. Typical British Tommy, isn't it? It is. It's that classic. And, and Ray Ellis is quite good at telling a story. Well, that's why we picked him. They then go for a firing camp at Aslo. So what, what's a firing camp, do you think? Practising making fires? Yeah, I think the clue is in the name. But uh, as soon as they've got big bangy things, it's probably practising firing the guns, Pete. Is it, uh, is it a nice, lovely, sort of lovely country environment? Well, no, I, I think um, one of the problems there is uh, regular sandstorms. It's a desert, isn't it? It's a desert. <laughs> it's, it's not very pleasant. And uh, uh, there's some other unpleasantness while they're there, isn't there? Oh, well, this, this is the death of Gunner Bob Polson, who from appendicitis... Uh, the, 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 we are, you may remember this from, uh, from the book and from other things. Uh, the medical officer, whose name was Finnegan, he, he's not a particularly caring medical officer, but then you have a perspective on this, don't you? It's difficult to tell. Yeah, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't mean he isn't caring, but, but his role basically was to get people back on duty, um, which he did to the best of his ability. Now, the lads sort of preferred the, the medical orderly, Harry Day, but, but, but that's because his job is, is, is TL, more TLC end of life and not getting them back to duty quite so vigorously. Anyway, this is the story of, 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 of Gunnar Bob Paulson. It's quite long and it's quite sad. Bob Paulson, he was in a little bivouac tent and he developed this illness, which Harry Day knew he got appendicitis, but the doctor wouldn't say so. He said he'd just got stomach ache or something. And I can remember we'd go out on range and come back and see poor old Bob there writhing in pain. He was just lying on the floor in this stinking little tent in the desert and he was in absolute agony and sweat was pouring off him. But still the doctor wouldn't do anything about it until in the end he had to realise that 
he was seriously ill, but by this time, Bob had been doing it for about three days. He'd been in, in a really terrible state. And so he was sent away, but he had to be sent away to Jerusalem, I think he was sent to. Uh, but there was this must have been two or three hundred miles away. The outcome of it was he had peritonitis, he burst appendicitis, and he died. I was being his, one of his closest friends, was sent as one of the burial party. And we set off across the desert to follow the same track that poor old Bob had made on his last journey. And it was an appalling journey. It was so bad, the bouncing in the back of this 1500 weight, that I went up and hit my head on the stanchions that come across to hold the canvas in place. And my nose was pouring with blood and dust and sand. And I thought, poor old Bob, coming along a thing like this with a, with a burst appendix. We saw the sister at the hospital who said that um, she'd never known anyone fight so hard for his life as this lad, but he died. We buried him in Ramley Cemetery, and uh, we had a burial party from the Hampshire Regiment, I can remember, who fired a shot, and we carried him and put him there, and poor old Bob remains there, and he shouldn't have died. I, without, without any hesitation at all, I'd say that, yes, I'd, I'd put that death at his door, definitely. He shouldn't have died. It shouldn't have been necessary to have kept him in those conditions. He didn't get the proper attention. I feel very bitter about it all these years afterwards. Had he lived, no doubt he'd have been killed anyway. Really, everybody was, but um, at some stage, probably. But that's beside the point. He shouldn't have died of appendicitis in the Sinai Desert. He should have been sent to hospital straight away. When Bob died, I was upset. He was my closest friend. And, um, yes, I, I sobbed. It was the first, he was the first to go, and uh, it really hit me. So what do you think of that? Well, I, I remember this from uh, when we did the, the South Not Cesar's podcast, and, you know, the thought of that poor bastard, excuse the phrase, in that truck with appendicitis. I mean, Ray Ellis smashes his head bouncing about. I, I just think he, the poor man must have been in absolute agony. Oh yeah, it's 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 chastening. It's it's just awful. Poor sod. Uh, There's also the fact that you know he he he's sort of quite sanguine about it in that he says he, he his friend Paulson shouldn't have died in that way, but you know he'd have probably died anyway, which is a really odd point of view unless you're in a, a sort of wartime environment when it's probably perfectly natural. Now, on the brighter side, the, the next story, and the, the, this is, it's the juxtaposition which sums up military life. For one minute there's tragedy, the next minute they're all having a good laugh. And the next story is about the, the food, which, uh, which got better in Palestine. And this is probably the funniest story that was ever told to me in all my time as an oral historian. The food definitely did improve in Palestine, particularly at Hadera. It was pretty good. And the conditions we ate under were better. We had a better mess tent and... Uh, we sat at trestle tables, and the food generally was better. I think the presentation was better. The presentation was better. We, um, it, for instance, if a soup was, or a stew type of meal was being served, it was served in some sort of more civilised manner. It wasn't scooped up by some dirty man in a dirty mug and dropped on a cold plate. There was a more sort of civilised way of going about it. It was still a bit rough, but much improved to what it was. We used to have a little story about our cooks. May I tell you this story? Because uh, it's rather, uh, the language is rather right. The story we used to tell was to say, um, we have a fantastic cook in the, in the troupe at the moment. He's um, a classical scholar. In fact, he has a Latin motto. 
Really? What's that? Fuck them games do. <laughs> what do you think of that there, Gary? Well, I don't think it's Latin. I think it's quite French, actually, isn't it? <laughs> but, um, Fuck them. Give them stew. I yeah. love it. Absolutely love it. But it, but it does make a difference if you get if you get a good cook if you get good food it does make a real difference and uh, I never ever had any complaints about food in the army and and you know I think that they they gave you as good food as anywhere. Um, and you were a growing lad. I was a growing lad. Unfortunately, I didn't stop. <laughs> now they're 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 soon uh, in, they're they're only there for about five or six months, and then in June, late June, nineteen forty, the Italians have come into the war and they move up to Egypt, uh, and uh, there, there's the classic going into action story from Ray. We're quite thrilled about this because we knew we were going into action and this was good. And I remember getting some chalk and I remember writing across the name, Mussolini, here we come. The great men were arriving, how green we were. But that was it. So there was a feeling of no fear, exhilaration. At last we were going into action. We were really going to show these Italians what was what. The South Nazis ours were coming. This was, I suppose, typical of many young units going into action for the first time. Um, do you think they knew what was happening? Do you think? Do you think the Italians would have feared them? No, I mean, it, there, there's there's a sense of bravado, isn't there, that that's uh, engendered amongst a group. Um, so it, it's it's perfectly natural to, to, to be full of it, as it were. Uh, and they were, because at that point they hadn't experienced some of the things that they later experienced. Well, there's an early uh, an early clue for Ray Ellis, because they're, they're going to Mercer Matru, uh, which they, they get to in June, uh, still in June. And uh, they're, they're, they're in positions outside the, the... It's a sort of holiday resort in some ways, and so it's not far from Alex. And uh, Ray's sent back with a truck to the town uh, to pick up su- supplies. And, and then the most terrible thing happens for, for Ray. And I heard a, a screaming sound. And the next thing, there was this vicious explosion. And I hold myself to the ground. Of course, what it was was a stick of bombs falling. But I didn't know at the time it was a stick of bombs. And I hadn't heard any aircraft. And there'd been no air raid w- warning or anything. And so there was this devastating flashing and crashing and blast. And I was absolutely bewildered. And, and then it went quiet. And then there was another scream. And, and a man came out of the street, a soldier he was, he came out of the tree. And he was screaming. And he was, I can remember he was holding his guts in. And all his stomach had been torn open. And all his entrails were tripling through his fingers. And he was, he was screaming. And then he went, sank to his knees and his... Screaming changed to a sort of gurgle, and he just sort of you know, dropped almost at my feet, and um, I was absolutely appalled. It was, it was so new and so strange, and so and the noise of it, and the, the he was screaming, and then his scream changed to a gurgle, and he just, oh, his guts were all turned. His entrails were strained through his fingers. It was an awful sight. I've often thought of this poor man, and because uh, he was the first man I saw die. Now that that's not funny by any account, is it? No. No, and um, you know, there but for the grace of God in Ray Ellis's case, because it's you know, it's it's just a matter of where these things land, and and it was it was terrifying. And he has a, a, a close shave himself not long after, doesn't he? He does. And the bombs came screaming down so fast that I didn't have time even to lie flat or get in the slit trench. I went into a crouched position and froze there, and. 
bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb came down onto this dump and absolutely destroyed it. All the time I was saying to myself, I shan't feel anything, I shan't feel anything, I shan't feel anything. I remember saying this at the time. When the raid was over, I was still crouching, petrified really, and the whole dump had been destroyed. Everything had been blown to smithereens. At the end of it, I had no wounds, no blast, nothing. I was completely unscathed. It was the most amazing thing. Again, that's lucky. Yeah, I mean, I mean we, we joke about it being lucky, Ray, but he, this guy, things happen to him occasionally, things go wrong. But he is, throughout his career in the army, he survives a lot of things. Yeah, and to come through unscathed, he, you know, he, in that quote, he himself says, it's a miraculous escape. And he's right. Now, they were digging a set of gun pits uh, for, for around part of the defensive positions. And, and then, again, we've got a juxtaposition of stories. We've just had the bombing. We've had this horrible death of someone. And then we've got a great humorous story. We used to keep beer. We used to get beer there. And we used to keep beer in the gun barrel to keep it cool. And so you'd close the breach and then drop them down. I remember once we had a, a general officer come to examine the position and by this time we were all black because we worked naked virtually just a pair of shorts that's all we wore for months and he said to someone is it wise to have native troops so near the front and the colonel said I do apologize so we must have looked like Arabs and this same general having said this yes went to the gun and opened the breach and then clonk Block <laughs> out cake bottles immediately, slid down the breach and dropped onto the ground. Yeah, he just looked around and closed the breach silently and said nothing. Very typeful. No. Nothing was said. He'd, he'd called us native troops, so he, he owed us that, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, you can imagine that, can't you? Just opening up and the bottles falling out, yeah. Um, on another day, he'd have probably had them all. Uh, uh, on a charge, but uh, he couldn't really do that, could he? He'd call them native troops. Now, now into the modern eye, this all looks a bit dodgy, but, but but we've got to remember, this is the context of the time, and that would be an insult in the context of the time. Now, um, what's it like uh, at Mercer Matru? How would you describe it? Is it, a, is it a balmy seaside resort? Well, no, I mean, they're, they, they're really unpleasant conditions. They're hot, sticky, as mentioned earlier. You know, there's sand. What does sand do? It gets into things, doesn't it? Particularly crevices. Um, but... Uh, Ray's, Ray's got... He's got another story, he's hasn't got another he? another story. I can and, tell from what you're, you're lining him up. And uh, it, and again, you know, we haven't mentioned this, but his, his brother's there as well, and this is a, a story that involves his brother. Hair was a great problem because um, you sweat, obviously, and your hair becomes greasy with natural sweat, and then the sun blows, gets into your hair, and it mats it. That's terrible, and you can't get a comb through it. And my brother said, after we've been there reasonably short time, he said, uh, you know, I think the best thing we could do is we cut off our hair altogether, cut the whole lot off. So we discussed this and thought this was a good idea. So I sat on a petrol tin, and George cut off all my hair. And then when he saw what it looked like, everyone changed their mind, and I was the only one with all his hair cut off. <laughs> I love the idea he's cut off his hair off. And he's the only one. He's got his hair off. I can imagine they all went round. Morning, Ray. <laughs> uh, this time, he's a, he's, he's, he comes off the guns for a while. He's trained as an observation post specialist assistant, which means he's closely assigned to uh, Major Peter Birkin. Um, and he's promoted as to Lance Bombardier. 
Realis, which is a bit like Lance Corporal, uh, your own uh, distinguished rank. That's ra- that's about October 1940. And uh, he's actually acting as uh, OP assistant to Birkin, Peter Birkin, uh, with a composite battery, which is formed. You'll find more about this in our uh, in our podcast. And your book. The, and the book, of course. Uh, um, uh, and uh, during Operation Compass, they're attacking the Italian camps. The, the, the Italians have advanced into uh, Egypt, and the, they stop and, fo- and, and dig in and build camps, and they're attacking them in December 1940. Now, the Italians don't do terribly well. They've got bad equipment, and they're attacked in a surprise attack. And the, the South Nazis are involved in it. Now, Ray isn't particularly involved, but he does see them the, the surrender of the Italians. They came streaming out in thousands thousands it was the most amazing sight from all these camps there were thousands of them there were so many that there weren't enough infantrymen to look after them they started to build sort of quick dunnet wire prison compounds where you quite close you know just to wire them in somebody was having to do a tremendous amount of organization as you imagine to feed them look after them there were so many of them that eventually i was given the job of taking must have been a hundred men I'd got, and all I got was a rifle. But there's no danger, they'd just given themselves up. They're just slouching along, de- demoralised, really. There was no... I couldn't speak to them, because I couldn't speak Italian then. First time I'd ever seen any enemy. And I just got this great column of men, and then I was told, you march them down, we're building something, take them down there, and you'll find somewhere to hand them over. And so I just marched in front of these hundred men, or just to the side, and, and they just came docilely along in a long column. Most amazing thing. Eventually, I was able to hand them over, and they were all filed into a um, barbed wire compound. So, so that that's that's quite a thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, he's then promoted. Once you start getting promoted in the army, you often find yourself promoted quickly, time after time. Was that your experience in the army? Time after time, but there was some things in between, unfortunately. <laughs> Are they demotions? Yeah, one or two. Anyway, he's promoted shortly after to bombardier, full bombardier. And they're in the Suez Canal area. They're, they're watching for mines dropped in the canal. They've moved out there. Uh, but this is a last story for today. And again, it's a, a funny story. And there's quite a lot of upsetting things in these things. So it's nice to, to, to finish with a funny story. I did manage to get into Suez one day. I went with Bob Folds. We got there to see two men walking up the road, dragging a third man by his ankles who, with his head in the gutter. And I remember saying to this is disgusting. It's just the type of thing that gets the British Army a bad name abroad. Absolutely paralytic, the three of them. One was so drunk he couldn't walk. And while we were looking with disgust at these three soldiers, I realised that one was Fred Lamb <laughs> and the other was Wag Harris. I said to Bob, that's Fred and Wag. The other one must be my brother, the one with his head in the gutter. <laughs> And so, of course, it was. And so, these disgraceful British soldiers were really my best pals, my brother. Now, that story must, must resonate with you, Gary, from both your personal character and your friends. Well, no, my brother doesn't drink very much. Your friends? Oh, my friends don't drink very much either, but you do. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) But it's a lovely idea, isn't it? It is, yeah. You can imagine it going, look at that. Look at that. Disgrace the British Army. Oh, Oh, 
Oh, <laughs> my brother <laughs> and my best mate. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Well, that's it for today from Ray Ellis. Uh, there'll be another special in a month or so, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it's wonderful hearing his voice, isn't it? It is, and, and to hear him telling it in his own words. And as ever, we pay tribute to the War Museum, who paid for all of the interviews to be done. It's nothing to do with me, really. I was a paid employee. And if you want to listen to the full interview, type in Ray Ellis and IWM and it'll come out on their website you've got a, about 25 hours of it you can listen to anyway cheers Gary thanks Pete mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?